Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library, Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner. I'll be your host today with my best friend, Troy Eller English. Hi, Dan, my bestie. So as my bestie, I got a story for you. Oh, good. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right, this, this, is, a, this is a story from our, one of our collections, American Federation of Teachers Collection. Okay. So I'm taking you back to 1919. June 2nd, 1919. Women teachers organize a local. Now, let me preface here. AFT locals, very craft-oriented. So you had women teachers for elementary schools, women teachers for high school. Uh, you had men High school locals, men, elementary, also broken up by class and race as well. But anyway, so women's high school teachers organize a local union, affiliate with AFT, for the purposes of telling their bosses that they want the raise that they were promised, but also it was to get pay equity with the men. Month later, July 1919, the men high school teachers organize their own local, not really telling the AFT really what their plans were, but it was to make sure the women didn't get equity. Men. Men, am I right? <sighs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, AFT finds out, right? And Charles Stillman, president of the AFT, writes a very stern three-page letter to them, essentially saying, that's not unionism. That's not what we're all about. This is bad. So either you get along with the union movement and what we believe in is pay equity for equal work or get out. And the men got out quickly. All right. So anyway, that's the story. We have lots of union collections here dealing with pay equity. But we decided to focus in on the AFSCME collection here at the Walter P. Ruther Library. So we talked to uh, Stephanie Coloya, talked about pay equity, comparable wage, um, the campaigns they led in the 70s through the early 80s. And also, it's a very good timely thing. Why, Troy? Because this April 2nd is Equal Pay Day, which is the day that we celebrate women being paid about 20% less than men, uh, having to work all of last year and up until April 2nd this year to earn the same amount that men earned last year. Woo! What a great holiday! <laughs> great. Yeah. Men. <laughs> Let's see. It was, it was a couple years ago, it was 77 cents. To the dollar. Now 80. So at this rate, 30, 40, 50 years, women will be having the same pay as men. I'm going to be retired by that time. <laughs> so this is a really depressing holiday. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go drink more coffee. And I'm only editing out 80% of your cursing. That's how I celebrate. <laughs> Okay, let's get to the interview with Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Dan. What's shaking? Bacon? Excellent. There we go. Uh, no, I, I I came in today and I tripped over a bunch of boxes from AFSCME. I you've been I busy. Know. So yeah. what you been up to? Well, not handling boxes recently, but um, yeah, I have a lot of material coming in from the organizing department from AFSCME, and uh, I'll be processing 
several hundred boxes from them. Several hundred. Mm -hmm. It's a huge project. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. But we're here to talk about something else yeah. besides your boxes. Pay equity. Uh, April, what is it? April 2nd is Equal Pay Day. So we thought we'd talk to you about the pretty cool, amazing campaigns that AFSME has done in the past and the collections that we have here. Now, not to discourage any of our other donor unions. Guys, we know you have huge pay equity, equal wage campaigns that go on. But we thought we'd talk to Stephanie. We haven't talked to Stephanie in a while. So so why don't you tell us uh, where, um, where it started in the modern era for AFSME on the issues of sexual discrimination? Well, um, just to mention first, as we know, the Equal Pay Act of 1963 was passed, and then the Civil Rights Act of 1964 under Title VII had uh, sex discrimination protections. But there didn't seem to be a whole lot of change in its terms of pay. And so in 1972, AFSCME established the Interim Committee on Sex Discrimination, which was composed of AFSCME leaders from across the country. Um, the chair was actually a woman from Detroit. Her name was Moselle McNoriel. And one of the first things that the committee did was they conducted a survey of AFSCME members to find out what issues they wanted AFSCME to focus on going forward. So top on the list was sex discrimination, particularly in the form of pay. Good. All kind of things are going on at the same time right now in the history. Now exists a clue. Coalition of Labor Union Women were formed a couple years a year later, 1974. Um, but there was activity in Washington State um, with AFSCME, right? Yeah. So this is like one of the first big studies. So why don't you, why don't you tell us wh what happened in Washington State? Uh, in Washington State, AFSCME Council 28, which represents the state employees, in 1973, they wrote a letter to the governor asking him to correct the pay disparities that they saw between men and women uh, state employees. And so the state conducted a wage study, and this is where we kind of first see the concept of comparable worth. And so the way the study worked and a lot of the studies that followed was they would analyze different job classifications and assign them like a numerical rating based on a number of different criteria. So things like the level of skill required for the job, the working conditions, you know, how much physical exertion are required and that sort of thing. And so they added up all the numbers and they got a rating which would represent the worth, you know, quote-unquote worth of the position. And so then they were able to compare jobs that seemed like they were completely different but, like, had that same rating um, to each other and then take that further and look at jobs that are predominantly held by women compared to jobs predominantly held by men. And then it was very obvious that the jobs predominantly held by women were significantly underpaid. Um, yeah, I, I did my own homework, and the, the study that when it finally came out showed something about 20% off. Yeah, of, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. How hard was it to for them to compile this information? I mean, nowadays, public employee information is very readable. Was it then, or was it a lot of back from the state saying, no, you can't have this information? You know, I don't know exactly how it worked in Washington. I know more about San Jose, how that process worked. But I do know that they hired they hired consultants who came in and did did all the work. 
All right, you mentioned San Jose. Very cool. All right, so down the coast, another thing's happening mm -hmm. with the power of librarians, right? Yeah. Um, the librarians, I mean, it was a lot of different groups and workers in San Jose who were involved, but the librarians, like, throughout California were really talking about pay equity. I think there was a California State Librarian Conference that some of the San Jose employees attended, and it kind of sparked them to pursue pay equity for themselves. There was an AFSCME staffer named Maxine Jenkins who was really crucial at that point. So what happened was the city manager of San Jose decided he wanted to do a study of the management positions and their pay because he thought that they were underpaid and he wanted to be you know, competitive. So he um, got approval for the study. And so then at the same time, Maxine Jenkins and others pressed the city to also study the non-management classifications. She was also crucial in getting them to focus more on predominantly women-occupied positions versus predominantly men-occupied positions as part of that study. And to also allow the employees themselves to be participants in creating their job descriptions, which were what were going to be used to come to that rating score. Was it a long process or could they get this, this study done pretty quickly or what happened? No, it was a long process. Yeah. Initially, AFSCME wanted to get from the city information about specifically what the consultants were going to be using to evaluate like, what criteria they were looking at. Um, but they couldn't get that information. Um, it Maybe it was proprietary information or maybe the, the city was being stubborn. I'm not really sure. So they weren't able to get that information, which would be important because something they do as part of their job that they might not think to include could turn out to be really important in the eyes of the consultant. So since we're talking about librarians, although there are you know many other types of jobs represented, the librarians use their librarian skills to hunt down some past studies done by the same group of consultants. And so they were able to kind of glean what specifically they'd be looking at, and they were able to craft their job descriptions accordingly. Power of the librarian right yeah. there. That's yeah. true. So the they had done the management position survey. Of course. And got the results for that, which showed that the managerial positions were underpaid. And so that was presented to city council, and city council was like, oh, no, we need to pay our managers. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so they had no problem finding any money to, you know, finding the money that they needed to correct those wages. And then the non-managerial classification study came out, or, well, it was completed. And the city's negotiators told the union, well, we might share those results with you if we see fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, that that didn't go over well. <laughs> I imagine not, no. Um, so obviously, AFSCME pressed, pressed them. They ended up getting the results released. But then, of course, they didn't want to do anything about, you know, they, they couldn't find the money then, you know. They didn't right. have any money. Of course. Even though they had plenty of money to pay the managers. So do you have an example of some of these uh, job classifications and ratings? Um, one example is city nurse, which is a position held by women, and electrical foreman, mostly men in that position. They both had a 
um, rating of 364. The city nurse was making $839, I think that's per month, and the electrical foreman was making $1,160. Oh my gosh. Um, Still significant, senior librarian rated at 493 compared to associate civil engineer, which is rated at 405, so a bit lower. Librarian was making $898, civil engineer $1,072. Senior telephone operator, mostly women, and sign painter, mostly men, both had a rating of 178. The women were making $585, the men $943. And you can kind of go through the report and come up with multiple similar examples. So it was a pretty obvious and pretty yeah. large difference. Yeah. That's great documents to have for mm-hmm. researchers. Excellent. Yeah. All right. It took them a while, as you said, to get this going. But then Prop 13 passes through California and this stifles all of uh, public funding. Uh, did this have a huge effect on getting the raises, getting the comparable worth or anything like that? Yeah. So that I think that happened before they really started their campaign, but it did, you know, it caused... Um, you know, the city workers across the board weren't getting any raises for like a two-year period. And so when they came to um, negotiate the uh, results of the study, the city wanted to dip into general increase fund in order to correct the pay inequities. And so that's really was kind of the breaking point where the union decided that that was not going to fly and they were going on strike. And this is considered one of the first comparable wage strikes in the country. Yeah, as far as we know, it's the first public employee strike on the issue of pay equity. That's so cool. See, this is why we're talking to you about AFSCME. That's neat. (laughs) San Jose went on strike in July of 1981. Shortly after they went on strike, the city manager sent letters out to all the employees who were on strike. And it demanded that they return to work or they could lose their jobs. So they took those letters along with a barbecue grill over to City Hall and burned them outside his window. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So the strike only lasted eight days. Mm -hmm. Finally, the city agreed to uh, find $1.4 million uh, that were separate from the general increases to correct the wage inequities over two years. It wasn't a 100% correction, but it went a long way. It started the, the ball rolling. Right. Right, right. So power of the barbecue. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So then uh, Washington State Council, ASME Council 28, was really bolstered by that success. And they filed a complaint with the EEOC that didn't really get them very far. So then they filed a lawsuit against the state of Washington. The plaintiffs were AFSCME International, AFSCME Council 28, and the nine individual people who were in those job classifications that were underpaid, um, including one man who was a nurse. So it's not just an issue that affects women, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So they, they won that case, and then it was overturned on appeal. And so AFSCME appealed again, and then eventually they settled out of court. I think that was over in 1986, so it took almost 13 years for that whole process to play out. It's a long time to keep up the battle, but it's it's worth it. What was going on in Minnesota? Minnesota. 
So there, in 1982, they passed their a state law um, requiring a pay equity study and implementation for state workers. Um, and then later they passed a similar law for local municipalities. Um, that one, by the time it got passed, I don't think it was, I think it was a little watered down. It wasn't as effective, but I think they were the first state to implement at that level uh, this kind of pay equity studies and correcting the pay inequities. Okay. But all, with all this activity in San Jose, Washington, and ASME pushing this forward, I'm sure it seemed like it steamrolled throughout the country. Mm-hmm. States were doing studies. More and more states outside of the South were doing more and more studies, right? Yeah. I mean, once San Jose happened, it really kind of kicked everything into high gear. And so there were um, cases in Los Angeles and Connecticut and New York, um, Pennsylvania, like everywhere. You know, everyone was kind of looking at their wages and seeing the inequities and trying to get those corrected. And I think also what's significant about San Jose was that they achieved a lot of this through the collective bargaining process. So it was part of their collectively bargained agreement that they would get the study done. And then they were using collective bargaining to get the results of the study acted on. But from there, a lot of local unions kind of took up the same cause and um, a lot of them had a lot of success. Yeah, they did. And collective bargaining is their contract with the workers. So it was some it was it was it was their law on their site. But it also these issues were going on in the federal courts as well, right? So we had Washington versus Ask Me versus Washington State. Yeah. And there was another court case, I can't remember the name. Gunther. Gunther. Okay, can you explain those to me? So Gunther that was a Supreme Court case decided in 1981. I think it was before the San Jose strike or right around the same time. Um, that involved prison employees, men and women, who had different but similar jobs, and the women were underpaid. And I think the decision kind of set the precedent for the use of Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act and cleared the way for the argument of comparable worth for increasing the the women's pay. You mentioned um, the appeal on the mm-hmm. versus Washington State. It seemed like at that time the Reagan administration decided to look at what was going on mm-hmm. and say, no, we really don't need this pay equity for women. <laughs> and they actually supported the appeal for Washington State. So they started the, the federal government started coming in there. Um, and it seemed like to me, when reading about it, that the Reagan administration uh, had a hand in slowing down the tide that was happening that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But to me, it sounds like people who are very comfortable on a single income for their family who might complain about women making too much money. Oh, God, I can't have that. So it's still taking a while for equality in the the pay scale for Mm -hmm. women and men. Uh, I think right now we're about Mm, holding on to 80 cents to the dollar. Mm-hmm. What campaigns do you know about that AFSCME is conducting right now that will eventually find its way into the archives? Well, AFSCME you know, has continued to support this issue. They were big supporters of the Lilly Ledbetter Act, which was signed in 2009. 
I think right now it's the Fa uh, Paycheck Fairness Act that has been kind of out there for a while, and they're really supporting the passage of that, and they, you know, continue to support collective bargaining um, efforts to have equality for men and women. All right, so as someone comes here doing research, what collection, what are they going to find in these collections? Um, well, the communications department records have some photographs. They have um, also some a video project that was done by an Ask Me staff person where they interviewed everyone, many of the people involved in the Washington case, so including the individual plaintiffs and some lawyers. One of the plaintiffs talked about because um, you know how I said this took almost 13 years. So by that time, not all of the plaintiffs were still employed by the state. And so they never saw their, you know, their equity money. And so this one woman, she had left state employment. But once they had finally settled, um, one of her coworkers who was so appreciative of, you know, her fight for pay equity actually sent her her first check with the money in it. Nice. So That's really cool. there's nice little stories like that in, in those interviews. There's also the program development department records, the women's rights department records. They kind of cover pay equity and other like women's issues. Um, President Jerry Wirth, President Gerald McEntee, Secretary Treasurer Bill Lucy, like they're all really supportive of pay equity. Um, Susan Holleran, we have some of her papers. They, uh, she was a journalist for AFSME. She wrote for their magazine. Um, and then, of course, there's non-AFSME collections. We have Coalition of Labor Union Women records. We have SEIU District 925, um, including an oral history project with that. So there's a lot of resources here at the Ruther. Right. And we also have um, AFSME Research Department records, which probably have a lot of um, collective bargaining agreements and some of those various studies that have been done. Um, those are not currently open, but anyone can get in touch with me and I can help you get access to that. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Dan. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. You ready, madam? Ready as I'll ever be. Okay, we're talking about male equality, mm -hmm. right? Men's rights. Men's rights. Men's rights, uh, especially white men. Yes. And so, are we recording? Yes. All right, pause. <laughs> are we still recording? She always leaves it on, just in case I say something stupid. All right, and then we need to record some silence.
You're breathing too loud. <sighs> Damn it, Dan. 